Welcome back to Health Conscious. This is Joseph. And this is John. And we have a great conversation with Lucy Finn from Quality and Operations Support at Kaiser Permanente. You worked at Kaiser, didn't you, Joe? Yes, I did. Lucy was actually one of my project leads uh, for the population health portfolio looking at diabetes care. We're going to go in a little bit about how she got to QOS at Kaiser and a little bit about what we should be thinking about as we go into this job market. Yeah, we couldn't be more excited to have her on. Uh, so thank you, Lucy. And with that being said, let's get started. first want to get into your background, you know, where you're from, you know, what school you went to, you know, why healthcare? If you could elaborate on that. Yeah, so I'm originally from San Francisco, California. I went to college at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, and I studied neuroscience, and they also have this uh, kind of transdisciplinary uh, major called the Science and Society Program, which is a little bit of a little bit of political science, a little bit of the philosophy of science, and then it's it's basically a public health e major without being called that. <laughs> um, I was at Wesleyan. Um, I had a great time there. I worked in a lab researching seizures, uh, and I think I kind of got my a, a good healthy dose of uh, academia. Uh, and realized how slow it can sometimes be. We had a really effective treatment uh, for the mice, but it, it was just a little disheartening to think how long it would take to actually be able to help humans with the disease and disorder. So I think I realized pretty quickly that research wasn't my niche. I also worked as a, a EMT while I was in college. I worked on the ambulance, and I also quickly realized that direct patient care was something that was a little frustrating for me in terms of treating the symptoms, not the actual root causes. I think I realized we were taking people on our rig and it felt like in my heart I knew that we hadn't we hadn't prevented this from happening again, you know. And a lot of the the reasons that they were sick in the first place were more systematic systemic problems. So that, I guess, is what kind of pointed me in the direction of public health. Um, so I got into Columbia's Masters in Public Health program, and I went actually straight from undergrad to my grad program, which I don't recommend, but it was still good for me. <laughs> uh, and so I started focusing on health of an aging society. That was my concentration. Um, working on the ambulance, we picked up a ton of people in nursing homes, and I think I just got a an inside glance at how broken our system is for caring for older pe people in this country. And so that's what I focused on in grad school. And then I guess I'll go on to, to my current role. I moved back from the East Coast to back to the Bay Area, back to San Francisco, and started working for Quality and Operations Support, which is an internal consulting department in Kaiser Permanente. And I think I... I knew about Kaiser Permanente because my mother actually is an emergency room physician and has been working for Kaiser for her entire life. And so I think I, I joke that I like grew up drinking the Kool-Aid in that I believe in the Kaiser model. I think that it's very rare to have a system that the, the incentives are aligned to actually provide preventive care. Most of our hospitals are 
you know, fee for service, and the more they treat you, the more money they make. Oftentimes, and Kaiser's one of those unique systems where that's not the case, and that they actually have financial incentive to keep you healthy. So uh, I think I, I believed in the model, and I was really lucky to stumble upon the, the QOS department. It's a group of really smart people doing very interesting work. So that is my story. Great. Uh, so when you made that transition from uh, graduate school to working at Kaiser, what kind of drove your decision-making process to pursue a career in consulting? And did you consider um, consulting for uh, a management consulting firm, or was it always a Kaiser-like organization that you wanted to go into? Yeah, I did the traditional consulting recruitment process. Uh, we had, as I'm sure you guys probably do as well, had consulting firms come on campus and do recruiting. So I went to all the info sessions. I, you know, I sent the applications out. I got an offer for Grant Thornton, which is traditionally more of a financial accounting firm, but they were growing their healthcare consulting division. It was, you know, the classic consulting road warrior type job where you're, you know, flying Monday through Thursday and then you're home just for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And so I think... <laughs> The nice thing about internal consulting is you don't have to do that. And I think for a long time, I thought when I got the offer, I, I was like, oh, I can do this. I'll rack up my flying coins, you know, <laughs> get used to the hotel lifestyle. And as soon as I got the offer from Kaiser, I think I like breathed a sigh of relief and was like, oh, I'm so glad I don't actually have to do that. <laughs> uh, but in, in terms of your question of, of why consulting, I think, so when I was in college, I worked for the dean's office. So I, again, back to the academia side of things, she did a lot of research on frailty as a as kind of a clinical indicator for older, older persons needing more help. So not just a disease, but kind of a, a host of ways to measure decline in, in older people. And I did a lot of citations for her. So again, reiterating that I didn't necessarily want to work in research <laughs> uh and then i think i think what attracted me most to consulting was just the problem solving aspect of it and the the switching from project to project i think it it was so exciting for, for me to think of of getting experience in a whole host of different areas i also worked for aarp um kind of from the from the policy side of things, I would go to the UN and go to the meetings there about, um, a, you know, rights for older persons internationally, which was super interesting. Uh, I think I'm still interested in that in that world in, in some ways. But yeah, I think, I think I was drawn to consulting because of the problem solving and because of the rapid pace of work is what I would say. I think that's definitely relevant. And I, I feel you in terms of kind of the research aspects. Um, I, didn't know, I didn't know that you worked in behavioral neuroscience before. In my undergrad, yeah. I, also, I also did research with, uh, with uh, mice in a neurochemistry lab, so I completely understand where you're coming from. Those mice, man. We've all spent a couple of years with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought um, it was interesting you talked about kind of the variety in projects. Could you elaborate on what projects you're working on now? And if you um, you know, in the future, want to work on more projects for the elderly population? Yeah, for sure. So I 
quality and operations support. I'm just going to shorten it to QOS. Um, They work on practically everything within Kaiser. They work in, you know, hospital projects, ER projects, outpatient projects, et cetera, et cetera. So usually how they staff people is not based on interest, but by who walks in the door next. So in typical fashion, I arrived and just got whatever spots needed to be filled, which at the time were diabetes, the diabetes care portfolio, and a thing called ROSCA, which stands for Regional Outreach Strategy Center of Excellence, uh, which is basically just the mail you get from, like, to remind you to do things, <laughs> which sounds very boring, but it is actually some of the most interesting work I've been a part of. Uh, so those were originally my two kind of assignments. Um, again, the interesting thing about internal consulting is they can be kind of longer term projects. So I've actually been on both of those teams for two years now. I could switch off, but I think it's it's almost like a you know a president. It takes a year or two before you start getting things running smoothly. So I think. Ideally, I would like to leave those projects when I feel like they're in a good place and I've kind of made a very big impact on the foundational work and how efficient things are. And then I just started working on palliative care, which, as I mentioned before, kind of uh, aging in the elderly is my uh, passion and interest. And so it's been exciting to start on that work. And hopefully everyone knows this, but the difference between hospice care and palliative care is hospice care is precisely six months or less to live uh, and is, you know, reimbursed by Medicare. And then palliative care is for any life-limiting diagnosis, so it could be terminal or it could not be. And it's just caregiver support, pain treatment, and relief of symptoms, and you can get it alongside of actual treatment. So you could be getting treated for cancer and also receive palliative care. Great. One question I have for you is, we all know Kaiser has a really interesting model and way of doing things. So what are the, some of the differences uh, that Kaiser has in the palliative care and hospice care uh, areas versus uh, some other systems in the country? Yeah, I mean, I, I really think that Kaiser's biggest asset is its integration. And I think what that means practically is data. I think that any Kaiser patient comes to a Kaiser hospital and we have all of their medical records in one place. We know what their wishes are. We know who their designated decision maker is in case there's an emergency. We have it, you know, we have their advanced directives or polls documented and and we know and we can honor their wishes. And, And same with same with diabetes care and, and palliative care for that matter, it's, we have registries. So with palliative care, we have a prospective registry that kind of scans their chart for indicators that they may be needing specialty palliative care services. And we have teams of, uh, you know, like cross-disciplinary teams of a social worker and a nurse and a doctor and a chaplain if the patient wants, reach out to them instead of just waiting for them to show up at our doors when they're you know, having, you know, poor symptom, poor symptoms or maybe nearing end of life. So I think in a, in a traditional uh, hospital, it, you know, there's nobody going and prospectively reaching out to you or proactively doing anything. If they wait for you to come to them is usually how it works. And I think 
the data is what allows us to do that and really care for our patients and make sure we're preventing disease and maintaining high quality of life for our patients. So, so what kind of outcomes have you seen uh, from this kind of data-driven approach? And also, do you think this is uh, something that's going to be uh, replicated by other systems? Um, or do you think it's even possible for them to do that because Simply Kaiser has so much patient data and you guys are such an integrative system that uh, the other systems literally can't follow in your footsteps? I think that a lot of, and this might be my myopic view from, you know, being in this world, but I, I we joke that every everyone else is trying to Kaiserize <laughs> like advertising campaigns, but I think uh, more and more hospitals are, are promising this integration. I think, you know, they tried it at a, at a national level, and it kind of fell flat on its face because there's, you know, the impression that there's gatekeepers. I don't know if you studied this in your um, health policy classes already, but it, it was a pretty big failure from a <laughs> from a national perspective. So I don't know if I don't think I don't know if our country's ready to try it again. But I obviously believe in the model, uh, and I think uh, I would hope that there are more like us to come. Um, and then. Referencing your question about measuring outcomes, so I guess this is probably a a good place to start um, talking about the diabetes work, which I actually partnered with Joseph on last summer. I had the great pleasure of being able to work with him on my diabetes portfolio. It was a great summer. Um, Lots of fun. But I, I would say we we measure a lot of outcomes with our data. We um, are mostly driven, like the outcomes I think we've focused most in, in diabetes are the ones that we get public, or that are publicly reported, that we get reimbursements on based on how well we perform. So for diabetes, it's what we focus on is um, having your blood sugar in control, and there's a test that measures that over a six-month period. That's called, it's like a hemoglobin, A1C. It's a, it's a part of your blood that bonds to the, to the sugars. And so we got, I think, third in the country last time, and we slipped a little from there, this most recent reporting period, but I think very outcomes-focused. And I actually think sometimes we can be a little too outcomes-focused with our data and that we need to take a step back and actually focus on patient experience. So that was actually what Joseph was working on this summer. And I guess to summarize this project, we were really interested in we reach out to these people all the time. We remind them to take their diabetes medications. We remember, you know, ask them for their blood sugar readings, you know, titrate their meds, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we are wondering if we were bugging them too much, basically. You know, were we following up too frequently? Were we being too pushy about being on diabetes medications? Are some of our pharmacists have better bedside manner than some of the other ones. We, it's a big program. There's, you know, over 300,000 members with diabetes in Northern California. We have a bunch of pharmacists who are working with them to make sure they're doing well. Um, but we hadn't really measured in our diabetes population, what do people really think about our services? So, so Joseph led that program, started the beginning of that program to kind of evaluate not just the patient outcomes, but the patient experience. Yeah, and um, the name of the program is Phase, you know, preventing heart attacks and strokes every day. At Kaiser, we have millions of acronyms uh, that, that you have to learn. Millions. 
<laughs> Rapid, rapidly. I guess one thing I want to comment on is like the impact of the program. Now, over the length of the program, they've been able to make significant um, kind of decreases in cardiovascular risk within the populations. And with my part of the project, you know, uh, as, as Lucy mentioned, um, you know, we had been making such impact, but we didn't really understand the experience. So uh, I have the pleasure of kind of looking through uh, tons of data, different modalities, uh, you know, was also able to interview patients to really get uh, an understanding of, you know, what, what our patients were feeling, what were frustrations. And uh, there was kind of a myriad of, uh, of things that we kind of got from that. And, you know, that Lucy seems kind of working on. One piece, we, we looked at uh, internal surveys to kind of see where our, uh, or how our, our events, our, our population managers, APMs, who are these specially trained pharmacists uh, and nurses, were performing in terms of care experience. And, you know, what, within the different regions, uh, within Northern California, how they, how they were performing. Uh, and then speaking with the managers and patients to really get that full perspective. And one thing I do want to note is that Lucy is on the patient voice team, uh, which is very crucial for the process. And we work with tons of people, uh, tons of stakeholders throughout the organization on the project. Do you want to talk a little bit about the patient voice team, Lucy? Sure, yeah. So I think it, it's, it's a pretty grassroots group. Uh, our whole mission is smaller, simpler, faster. We kind of want to make getting patient voice and including patient uh, experience in your work as non-daunting as possible because uh, I think it's easy to, to just sit in your, you know, in your cubicle with all your consultants and kind of decide what's right for our patients and not actually go out and ask them. <laughs> so I think people are afraid because there's consent forms involved in getting patient voice and you want to make sure that you're following all the regulations. So we've tried to get the word out about what exactly what you need, when and why. Uh, so we have presentations that we give pretty regularly in trainings to the rest of our staff. And then we also help uh, do consults for people who are making surveys or interviews for patients, or we consult them from the very beginning of the process if they're not even sure how to incorporate patient voice into their project. They're like, maybe we should sit in a waiting room and ask people to fill out a survey, or like maybe we should call people, like what do you think we should do? And our team uh, can help kind of guide them to what would be helpful for their project. And yeah. it's, a great, it's a great group. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty fun bunch. And I think it's really like helps kind of push people, you know, getting out of their cubicles and really go out to see the patients. Definitely from the time I started there to the time that I ended, a lot more consultants who are going out into the field and really gathering uh, information overall. Do you want to talk a little bit about Roscoe and the outreach you're able to do with that? Because that, I feel like, is very important in kind of leading a lot of the initiatives that um, you're working on. Yeah. So, Roscoe, um, I would say one of the most interesting things I've learned at my job is how to be a translator in between what people want and the people who are doing it. Uh, we have a lot of data consultants. We have a lot of technical engineers. We have a lot of people who can can code and can make things, can build things 
from a back-end perspective. And then we have a lot of business consultants who know what they want but don't know how to make it happen. And so I find, um, surprisingly, because I would not consider myself the most tax-savvy person in the world, often what I'm doing is I'm, I'm shrinking people's asks into something that makes sense for a coder. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I do a lot of that in the Roscoe world because we work, we have a lot of kind of advanced systems that send outreach to people for cancer screenings and, uh, you know, some regulated programs like the special needs program. We send out uh, a bunch of outreach for, we send outreach for people who need bone density screenings because they might have um, osteoporosis. We send out messages about vaccines, you know, like your kid needs their flu shot, things like that. Um, so we, we have a bunch of different modalities. We're starting to explore the world of text more, but because it's uh, the, you know, Consumer Protection Act, TCPA, Telephone Consumer Protection Act, it, uh, you know, we have to make sure that our, we're, we're covered in terms of the le- legal risk. So we've been a little bit slow to start texting. Um, yeah, and I guess actually that brings up a question. How do you guys feel about receiving text messages from your health plan? What would you feel about that? I would be fine with it. I don't, I don't have an issue. I got, um, when I had Kaiser insurance, uh, when I was working, um, I had some messaging through text or messaging to go to kp.org through text, um, and I thought that was fine. Uh, it was easier and kind of quicker to prompt me. How about you, John? Um, I think I'd be fine with it, uh, with a few caveats. Uh, it depends on how many texts I was getting. If uh, you know, I was kind of getting bombarded with text from Kaiser or whoever, I don't know if I'd... Uh, appreciate that very much, um, and I also think it depends on what what I was being texted. If it was uh, sort of important information, uh, yeah, I, I would appreciate that. But if it was uh, more kind of uh, less important info, I'm not sure if I would uh, if I would appreciate that as much. And and to go and to go on from that, yeah, uh-huh. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to know about a you know diagnosis. <laughs> Uh, for something very severe via text, I'd want you know phone call or um, in person kind of meeting with my provider. Yeah, yeah, that kind of aligns with what <clears throat> we've been hearing from our our study group so far. Uh, you know, we already text for appointment reminders uh, and things like that that are very minor, um, and we're working on developing our infrastructure to store opt out. So if you reply no. We don't send you that message again, um, and and it is it's you know again a, a pretty big tech build to to make sure that we store all those things and for what exact campaign they've opted out of. Um, so it's, it's a rapidly growing world. There's a lot of people piloting things to see if they work and if people like them and if it's a more effective modality of communication compared to uh, you know an email or a security email on our kp.org site or a paper letter or a phone call. So it's um, been fun to explore. I, as a as millennial, I'm like, text me, I don't read my email. <laughs> but I think, yeah, what you guys were mentioning about the frequency and kind of the content of 
you know, is it a small thing that you don't care about or is it a small thing that you do care about or is it a big thing that really shouldn't be over text? I think we're finding our way through that middle zone right now. <clears throat> so a fun space to be in. Yeah, and um, I got to go to a couple of the Roscoe meetings. Um, do you want to give a ballpark number of how many pilots are going out and kind of the amount of messages? <laughs> uh, I ballpark how many how many active campaigns we have. I would say maybe thirty. Uh, ballpark how many uh, pilots we have? Probably ten to fifteen. And then if we want to go into number of touches, it's I couldn't even tell you. It's probably millions. <laughs> It's a really, yeah, it's a really fun space. I never expected to be in this, in in that portfolio, and I've actually found that I've really enjoyed it. So I, I think, and we all kind of know in our hearts that you don't, you don't really know what you want to do ever. Um, and it's funny how life can surprise you with things that you didn't think you wanted to do or you didn't plan, and then you really found joy out of. Just going off of that, what would you um, recommend for somebody coming out of school? Um, you know, you know. right now, a lot of people in their second year of their MHA or MPH program or MBA program are kind of interviewing, deciding what types of jobs, or jobs they want to have. What would be your recommendation uh, for them or advice to them? Uh, apply for everything. <laughs> I think, uh, I don't know if you guys have this, but we had just kind of a, a job, a career board. And I applied to anything that looked interesting, and I think it was really good practice to make those cover letters um, and send out my resume. I, my biggest recommendation for how to actually get a job, go on LinkedIn, find an area you want to live in or a company you want to work at, and Facebook message. There's a way that you can search of, of people who've been in your program. Uh, so you don't actually have to be uh, friends with them, but you can say, like, find people who went to my program. And you can look by city. You can look by, uh, you know, career type, whether they're in the nonprofit world or the consulting world. And send them a, send them a LinkedIn message and say, I'd love to learn about your job. Can you have a call or a coffee? And I think that, you know, I, that's how I got my internship with the Department of Public Health for my, in between my first and second year. Uh, and that's how I got my job at Kaiser, too. Uh, I think people love to talk about themselves, clearly. I've been rambling on for the last <laughs> People love to talk about themselves. People love to talk about their jobs. And it's, I think, one of the most effective ways to really get a sense of what a company's like. I think talking to someone from, you know, from your college, from your school, from your, you know, soccer team, whatever it may be, um, gives you a better insight into what a company's like than their website or, you know, their application process. So I would highly recommend it. Uh, and I think it's, it's very natural after those conversations to be like, okay, who's, who's the recruiter? Who should I send my resume to? Yeah, yeah, I, de I definitely agree with the uh, apply to everything uh, thing. I, I did the same as well, so <laughs> it's a good, good advice. Um, but <laughs> just looking forward, uh, now that you've been working for a couple of years at Kaiser as a consultant on all types of projects, what are some types of jobs that you think uh, Kaiser or 
other health systems are really going to have a need for in the future? Do you think it's going to be more on the consulting end or administrators or data analytics? What sort of skills and, and job types should students be kind of focusing on? Yeah, great question. I would say that across the nation, we are experiencing a need for people with uh, analytic skills and, and basic coding. As somebody who, you know, took my one, uh, you know, stata class in grad school, I don't think, I don't think necessarily that all the MHA students should start taking coding classes, but I definitely think a lot of hospitals and a lot of, a lot of businesses in general are needing those skill sets. That being said, the, the next best thing is somebody who understands how that works and can be like a translator, facilitator in between the, the people who are actually coding and the, and the people who know what they want and what data to do. So data interpreters, people who can do data visualizations, having some experience in Tableau, uh, I, I think showing showing those skills on your resume and starting to build those skills is probably um, something that the market would be looking for. I don't think we're ever going to run out of a need for consultants. Uh, I think, yeah, you know, I think I think the job market is looking good for you guys. <laughs> Great to hear. Great. Um, I guess uh, this, this will be the last question, but uh, what are you looking forward to? Um, you know, including your palliative care project that you have now? Yeah, I am definitely looking forward to getting more involved with how our patients age and how we can have them age better. I um, I just started with this palliative care work, you know, a few months ago, and I think there's incredible opportunities, um, not only for how we uh, treat our members with life-limiting illnesses, but how we treat them before that even happens and making sure that they have a fulfilling life where they're not feeling isolated or lonely and that they're still engaged and valued members of our community. I think we have a long way to go, and I'm hoping that um, Kaiser can make some change in that area. That was a great conversation with Lucy. Thank you so much for joining us for the podcast. Yeah, it was, it was great to learn about all her work, great work at Kaiser and your great work at Kaiser. And hopefully you guys picked up some of the tips she has for you um, as you go into the job market. Yeah, I hope you guys have a great week.